0: Well, Glenn Krieger wanted to go clean. He was on a methadone program and doing well. He was well on the way to breaking his addiction to oxycodone, a highly addictive painkiller in the opioid family. Glenn is trying to make things right with his family. He's promised that things are different now. He's getting things back on track. Then one night, his neighbour is playing loud music in the middle of the night. He can't sleep. He ends up getting up, knocking on the door. He hears no answer. He tries the door, it's open. He walks in. He finds two two people unconscious who he can't rouse uh, in the room. He looks around the room and there in front of him is a table full of oxygen uh, oxycodone tablets Glenn's eyes fix on those tablets then the next scene Glenn is in his car he's supposed to be on his way home to have dinner with his family but instead Glenn is frantically crushing oxy tablets into powder and then snorts them using a roll of dollar bills and he leans back and closes his eyes And we can hear the sound of his heartbeat, boom, 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 getting slower and slower. And then his heart stops. Now, Glenn is a fictional character in the show, Netflix show called Painkiller, which is based on the true story of America's oxycodone addiction epidemic. As an addict, Glenn Krieger kept falling That became his default position because he was an addict. He couldn't lift himself up out of the slimy pit. And the sad story of God's people, Israel, is in many ways very much like that as well. Israel keep falling. They keep defaulting into their old ways of worshipping idols and false gods and of rejecting God, Yahweh, their their true God, their true king. And we see that played out in this chapter in 1 Samuel 7. If you remember from last week, Yahweh has just shown his glory to Israel in the way that he brings back the ark in a miraculous way from Philistia back to Israel. Remember, it was taken captive... Uh, and put in the temple of Dagon, the Philistine god. But Yahweh wouldn't let the Ark stay there. He has his showdown with Dagon. Dagon ends up falling on his face and getting broken. He afflicts the Philistines with plagues. He makes sure that the Philistines send the Ark away and, and after a while it makes its way back to Israel. Well, Yahweh continues to show his glory to the Israelites. But instead of recognising his glory and treating God as God, the Israelites treat God just like the Philistines do. They act just like their enemies who don't know Yahweh do. They go back to their old ways. And the opening verses of the chapter sound depressingly familiar because it's the same old pattern of unfaithfulness and Israel abandoning their God that we saw a couple of books earlier in the book of Judges. But once again, God uses Samuel to deliver Israel. Samuel leads them to repent and turn away from their idols and Yahweh graciously saves his people. So that's where we're going today. Why don't you pray with me? Uh, and ask for god's help as we come to his word father we thank you for this story of one samuel we pray that today you would help us to to pause from our busy world and listen to you speak to us we ask lord challenge us comfort us encourage us in jesus name amen well, I got three points this morning. Uh, the first point, I forgot my clicker. The first point is God is Israel in the wilderness. Come on. No. Israel in the wilderness. Last week, you may remember, Pete showed us that in chapter 6, there are a lot of reminders from the exodus out of Egypt in the way that the ark came from Philistia back to Israel. And remember, there were plagues that were afflicted on the Philistines that, again, were reminders of the plagues in Egypt. Like the Exodus, God found a way to show his glory and deliver the Ark from the hands of the Philistines. So the Ark is freed and it returns to Israel. God's glory is revealed both to the Philistines and to Israel. But the people of Israel don't share in God's glory. In fact, they run away from it. Or actually, they try to send God away, uh, in, in a sense, by sending the ark away. Remember last week, when the ark returned to Israel, 70 Israelites were struck down when they looked into the ark breaking God's law, doing what they weren't supposed to. As a result, the people of Beth Shemesh, the town where the ark ended up, said to themselves in chapter 6, verse 20, who can stand in the presence of the Lord, this holy God? To whom will the ark go up from here? Literally, in the original language, it says, to whom shall he go up away from us? Send him away, we don't want him. God's glory is too much for them. They don't want it. Do you notice how familiar, how similar this is to what happened with the Philistines? Each time, uh, last week we saw, each time the ark uh, went to a different Philistine city, the people would be struck down with a plague and then the people wanted as much distance between them and the ark as possible. They send it away. And here the Israelites are struck down as well. And what do they do? They also send the ark away. God's glory is too much for them. Now we might shake our heads at the Israelites and and think how stupid they are. But are we really any different? We may genuinely desire God to be close to us. We may feel his love and forgiveness, his comfort. But have you really come face to face with his holiness, with his glory? Have you ever let his blinding light expose your sin? Have you ever let him see through every motivation and thought that you have? I think, friends, if we're honest with ourselves, when we come face to face with holiness, we can't hold its gaze. It's a terrifying thing to come into the presence of the living God, because we know that we don't measure up. Our default position is to want to take the good things about God that His love and His comfort and His grace. But then we run a thousand miles from his holiness and his glory. Well, the citizens of Beth Shemesh, as we saw, thought the same way. They they wanted to put plenty of real estate between themselves and the Ark of Yahweh. So they generously invite the people of a place called Kiriath-Jerim to play host to the Ark. And they accept. And it seems that they have a better time of it than Beth Shemesh because in chapter 7, verse 2, we are told that the ark stayed with them for 20 years. Now, the name Kiriath-Jerim probably won't mean anything to you, just another obscure little town in Israel. But here's a bit of background that will help us to understand what's going on here. If you remember back in the book of Joshua, remember Joshua was given a command by God to uh, conquer all the surrounding uh, people around them uh, because they were going to be Israel's inheritance. But in the midst of that territory were a group called the Gideon, Gibeonites, not Gideonites, Gibeonites. You may remember that they're the guys who tricked Joshua. They pretended that they were coming from a distant country and they asked Joshua to make a treaty with him. uh, Promise that you won't attack us. Joshua rushes in and makes that treaty, only later to find out that he was really tricked by them. They're not from a distant country after all, they're actually their neighbours. But Joshua holds to this promise, this treaty that he makes with the Gibeonites. They become, in effect, Israel's slaves. But they also come under Israel's protection. In effect, they become part of Israel. Well, it so happens that this little town of Kiriath-Jerim is a Gibeonite town. So, yeah, it's part of Israel, but most of the inhabitants are foreigners. They're Gibeonites. They're not Israelites at all. So what happens is that the one place willing to take the Ark of Yahweh is a group of foreigners. Israel doesn't want a bar of the Ark. But this little town of foreigners are the ones who accepts it. And it seems that they do well in the presence of the Ark. As I said, it stays there for 20 years and there's no hint of plagues or the people misusing the Ark. Instead, they consecrate a man called Eliezer to look after the Ark. It seems like they're treating the Ark with the respect and dealing with God's glory appropriately. While Israel wants nothing to do with God's presence. And that fact is reinforced by what we read in verses 2 and 3. We heard before that the Ark stayed in Kiriath-Jerim for 20 years. Then we're told, verse 2, then all, all the people of Israel turned back to the Lord. That's after 20 years. During that 20 years, what were they doing? Despite seeing God show his glory in the way that the ark miraculously broke free of the Philistines, 20 long years they waited before they thought it might be a good idea to turn back to the Lord. Do you hear echoes again of the book of Judges here? Long periods of rebellion and ignoring Yahweh, their king, before they turn back to him in desperation. Samuel then makes it clear to us what the real spiritual state of Israel was at that time. Verse 3, So Samuel said to the Israelites, if you are returning to the Lord with all your hearts, then rid yourselves of the foreign gods and the Ashtoreths and commit yourselves to the Lord and serve him only and he will deliver you out of the hand of the Philistines. So the Israelites put away their Baals and Ashtoreths and served the Lord only. They were still under under subjugation by the Philistines all these 20 years and the reason, because... They were engaged in idolatry. They hadn't just absentmindedly forgotten where the ark was. Israel was actively, brazenly, stubbornly bowing down and serving foreign gods. No different to the Philistines. They'd sent the ark away. They wanted nothing to do with their king. They had deliberately chosen to go back into the wilderness away from God's presence, thumbing their noses at his blessing, forgetting his promises, wanting no part of his glory. But this story ends well, doesn't it? Because they end up listening to the voice of Samuel. Now I wonder at this point if you've noticed something in the last few chapters. I wonder if you've noticed how Samuel has been missing in action. Samuel isn't mentioned at all for nearly three chapters. The last we heard of him was in chapter 4, verse 1. Since then, the Israelites are defeated by the Philistines, the ark is taken, the ark returns, and then we've got these 20 years in the wilderness where they serve foreign gods. And during all that time, Samuel is silent. We don't hear from him is very deliberately out of the picture. So where was he? Is he on very long service leave? Was he around but just being ignored by the people? We We just don't know. But the very clear message is that without a godly leader, the people go back to their default position. They go back to idolatry and unfaithfulness. They've really returned to the dark days of Judges. Remember the line that kept getting repeated in the book of Judges? In those days, Israel had no king. They had apparently rejected their leader, Samuel, and they had certainly turned their back on God. But now, Samuel is back, and the people listen to him. Second point, Israel repents. It seems there's a genuine change of heart and genuine actions that went along with that. True repentance is always like that. Look again at verse 3. Samuel says, If you are returning to the Lord with all your hearts, then rid yourselves of the foreign gods and the Ashtoreths and commit yourself to the Lord and serve him only. Their repentance had to involve real change, changed lives. And the core issue was a change in allegiance, from trusting in and living for these foreign gods to serving Yahweh alone. Samuel insisted they physically get rid of the statues and idols. And for us as New Testament believers, the call is still the same. Repentance still means to turn to God with our whole heart and turning away from our old gods. Paul says this in 1 Thessalonians. He says that believers right through the regions were giving thanks for the Thessalonian believers because of what they did. 1 Thessalonians 1:9. 1 Paul says that they tell how you turn to God from idols to serve the living and the true God. Same thing that Israel did, and friends, that's what we need to do too. We need to do not just as a one-off but to continually to do if Jesus is our king. We can't say that we trust in Jesus if what we really live for and put our security in is our idols. Now I don't mean that we have a statue of Dagon or Buddha or whoever sitting on our God shelf at home. For us our idols are more likely to be money pleasure, perhaps work, maybe even family. Whatever you give the best of your time and energy to, whatever you cherish the most in your heart of hearts, that's your idol. Last Wednesday night I went to church to join a few of the community groups to watching the Matildas play uh, England in the world cup semi-final i still feel really sad about it normally normally you will be assured that we we do normally actually study the bible in cgs but this was a special night now i've got to tell you i was really emotionally invested in the game when england scored first i was shell-shocked when sam kerr equalized i almost shouted the roof down When England scored again and then again, I knew it was all over. I I couldn't even stay and watch the end. I found it hard to get to sleep that night and I found myself having nightmarish visions of Illy Toon, the English striker who scored the first goal. Now, I don't normally get that excited over, over soccer... And there's nothing wrong with having things in our life that gets our, get our hearts pumping faster and we get excited by. But I realise that just, just through the experience how easily I set my heart on the things of this world, even if they're only temporary, even, even if, uh, if it's only for a short time. I set my heart on those things to provide what God alone can actually give. For my sense of identity, my sense of security, my sense of worth, purpose and satisfaction. Like the Israelites' default position was to chase after other gods. Even as Christians, friends, our default position is to find idols to replace what only God can give. And so the process of repenting and turning away from idols, as I said earlier, isn't just a one-off turning to Jesus. Yes, it is that. But it's a continual, constant, daily work that we never leave behind. Because Jesus demands that we put our trust in Him and serve Him only. Third point. Don't worry, we'll move much more quickly through... The rest of the chapter. Ebenezer point two. Well, after the people put away their idols, Samuel tells them to gather together and he will pray for them. Verse 5. And so that's what they do. They fast and they pour out water. That's a symbol of repentance. And then verse 6. Now Samuel was serving as leader. Literally, it says, Samuel judged the people of Israel at Mizpah. Samuel was back in town. He was leading, literally judging the people, and that's what judging involved. Not primarily like we think of a judge, but primarily showing spiritual leadership, serving and praying for his people. The job God chose for him to do all along. And when he does that, God blesses his leadership and the people walk with God. It seems like a happily ever after uh, line, doesn't it? But wait, because another crisis is knocking at the door. We find that the Philistines again get wind of Israel gathering at Mizpah and out they march once again, to attack Israel. Now remember that this has happened before. If you remember back in chapter 4, remember that when they um, take the ark into battle and the ark is captured, Israel are routed and thoroughly defeated. This sounds bad. Sounds like Groundhog Day, doesn't it? Are Israel going to get beaten again? Well, the author wants us to wonder that as well. Because there's a deliberate signpost connecting the two battles. The the battle at chapter chapter 4 in a place called Aphek and and this battle. Let's look back to chapter 4 verse 1. The Israelites camped at Ebenezer and the Philistines at Aphek. Fast forward to the second battle here in chapter 7 and there's a spoiler alert here, the, the uh, Israelites actually won. Uh, if you were listening to the Bible reading, you, you'd actually know that. Have a look at verse 12. Then Samuel took a stone and set it up between Mizpah and Shen. He named it Ebenezer, saying, Thus far the Lord has helped us. Do you notice that there are two Ebenezers? It's a deliberate reference to it so that we link these two different battles. They're actually two different places. Aphek is is in a different place to where this battle is going on. But the point is to connect these stories. We are meant to put them together. Now Ebenezer means stone of help in Hebrew, pointing to the idea that God is their helper. The irony is that the first battle in chapter 4 at Ebenezer, God didn't help them at all. Israel presumed that God would be with them, but he wasn't. And that points us to the difference between the two battles. In chapter 4, Israel presumed upon God. They were arrogant. They took the ark with them into battle and said, of course God is going to be with them, With us. Of course God is going to give us victory. And of course he didn't. But when the Philistines saw the ark, they were afraid. And their response was partly right because their fear was of the presence of Yahweh. They didn't get it wholly right, of course, but they got it partly right because they feared God's, the, the, the presence of the living God made them fight harder and they ended up winning. And as it turned out, God refused to be treated like a magic charm and that's why the Philistines were allowed to win and he left Israel to be defeated. Notice that in chapter 7 there's also a response of fear. This time the boot's on the other foot. Notice it's Israel who are afraid. Pick it up in verse 7. When the Israelites heard of it, that is the Philistines attacking them, they were afraid because of the Philistines. And this is how they responded to their fear. Verse 8, they said to Samuel, Do not stop crying out to the Lord our God for us, that he may rescue us from the hand of the Philistines. Notice the difference in their response, the response of Israel to chapter 4. Chapter 4, they arrogantly assumed, presumed upon God. Of course, he's going to be with us. Here they cry out in fear, desperate for God to come and help them, knowing that they couldn't say themselves, and so they turn to God. Samuel then offers a sacrifice and cries out to the people, and this time around, the outcome is very different. God listens. Verse 10. While Samuel was sacrificing the burnt offering, the Philistines drew near to engage Israel in battle. But that day, the Lord thundered with loud thunder against the Philistines and threw them into such a panic that they were routed before the Israelites. Notice who it is who does the fighting the Lord thundered and threw them into a panic. No mention of the Israelites doing anything at all. No charging bravely like Mel Gibson and Braveheart. The clear message is that it is God who brings the victory. And he does it in a way that takes us back to the great reversal that Hannah describes in her prayer back in chapter 2. Remember that? The way that God turns things upside down. The proud and the mighty are brought down and the humble will be raised up. Chapter 2, verse 10. The Most High will thunder from heaven. The Lord will judge the ends of the earth. And here we have God thundering against the Philistines as he brings justice to the earth. So Ebenezer point two is rightly named. God is the stone of help for his people. When Israel was brought to its knees in fear, they knew that only God could save them. And friends, this is a story that we do well to listen to because God continues to work in the same way. In our humanness, we often get things the wrong way round, don't we? We think that victory goes to the strong, the confident, the powerful, the beautiful. How many ads have you seen for fast, expensive cars with unattractive, physically weak drivers at the wheel? You don't see them, do you? They're always young, beautiful built like they spend 12 hours a day at the gym, don't they? Like me, really. (laughs) In my my dreams. (laughs) But, But seriously, we can have a Christian version of that, can't we? The powerful speaker, the gifted leader, those who look impressive. And we naturally think, because it's so intuitive, For us, it's so hardwired into us to think that it's the times when we feel strong and confident, when we have all our ducks in a row, it's it's those times that that God is going to use us and bless our ministry. But no, Israel fell spectacularly when they were at their most confident when they took the ark into battle. When were Israel at their strongest? Israel were at their strongest when they were paralysed by fear, crying out in desperation to God. We are strong when we are weak and when we know our weakness And we turn that weakness into strength by throwing ourselves onto the king of the universe. Israel came to see that the living God is truly their Ebenezer, their rock of help. But he will only help his people. He will only save his people when we humble ourselves when we admit that we are not our own gods, we are not in control. Jesus also described himself as a stone. He said that he has become the cornerstone, meaning the foundation, the building block of life, of everything, of the church. He is the rock, that we need to build our life upon if we are to be saved from our sin. But we cannot presume upon him. We cannot carry him around with us like the ark and assume that, yes, of course, Jesus will bless us, bless our ministry, bless everything that we do just because we have the name Jesus on our lips. Because Jesus is a rock. But a rock can be dangerous, can't it? After telling the people that he was the capstone, Jesus goes on to say this. Luke chapter 20, verse 18. Everyone who falls on that stone will be broken to pieces. Anyone on whom it falls will be crushed. Talking about himself the israelites found out that that the hard way they found out that the living god will not be mocked he will not be taken lightly and friends it's no different to us jesus is our rock he is our help he is our savior absolutely but we can only come to him on his terms in humility Independence, repenting of our idols, trusting in Him and Him alone to save us. Let's pray. Thank you, Father, that you are our Ebenezer. You are our stone of help. Thank you, Father, that we see that most beautifully, most powerfully. Demonstrated at the cross that Jesus has become our cornerstone, the capstones that the people rejected. Father, we pray that we would turn to Him, that we would build our life on Him. We pray that you keep showing us that, that we need you, that we cannot save ourselves, we cannot be saved by our idols. We cannot find hope, we cannot find meaning, we cannot find satisfaction in anything in this world other than you. And we ask that we would continue to turn to you with all our heart. And we pray it in Jesus' name. Amen.